Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I'm Steve Clark and welcome to Brooklands. Thank you for being here in great numbers again tonight and thank you as ever for supporting the Trust. Um, I've been running these talks for about five years now and when I look back at the motorcycle legends that we've had here, we've been clearly punching above our weight. Um, and I look back, just to remind you, the late, great John Surtees, Agostini, Jim Redman, Jamie Whittam, John McGuinness, Ian Hutchinson, Freddie Spencer, and Peter Hickman. And I'm delighted to add another name to that list tonight. So will you please welcome Shaky Burn and Steve Parrish. Good evening, everybody. Can you hear us at the back for a start? Good. Excellent. Thumbs are up. Lovely to be here. It's a great pleasure always to come back to Brooklands. Um, and I can't believe how many of you got out on Valentine's night. <laughs> uh, unbelievable. Now, Shaky, you have, so I thought it would only be right that under here... Um, oh, I've knocked the speaker over. There's my, my date for the night. <laughs> Um, and I you might actually take them home and tell, you can't, tell my I, wife I, I, that I, I got them for her. the kitchen, so you can't have them. <laughs> you can't have them. Have you, did you get Petra some, some flowers today? Uh, <laughs> I did take her for lunch. Did you? Okay, fine. Okay. I've actually, because we're here tonight, I've booked my wife a table for tomorrow night, or booked us a table for tomorrow night, which I know she's going to be cross with because she's shit at snooker. Um, <laughs> 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 But seriously, it is a, seriously a great pleasure to be here at Brooklands, it always is, and it's a, even more of a great pleasure to be here with Shaky because I am, uh, and I don't mind admitting I'm a big fan, I really am, um, this lad has come up from pretty much nowhere, he's gone right to the top, uh, multi, six times British champion, and he is still the Shaky that was back then, so it's a credit to you, and seriously, he's a lovely man. Uh, that's enough smoke up your ass for now. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start at the beginning because I'm getting old and I forget if I start jumping around. Um, I remember you coming on the scene and it was with Fast Bites, Colin Schiller, I believe, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Funnily enough, we are just talking to one of the people in the crowd who said he's got a Ducati 916 SPS. Um, ironically enough, number 67 of the models done. I think there was 400 of them done, maybe. And um, that was the bike that I actually had to do my, my test on, right? Because don't tell anybody. Most people do it on a 125. Yeah, well, listen, this is the thing, right? <laughs> I started, right. I started is, doing... Is there any policemen in the room? Before yeah. <laughs> Insurance companies, police, solicitors? No, no. Anyway, I started um, doing the fast bikes thing, and I was a big fan of fast bikes. I, I used to read the race riot stuff, and used to basically want to be one of those guys and wanted to, you know, to do well at racing. So um, it turned out that I got this, this job at Fast Bikes and I went off to, to south of France with them and tested a few bikes and stuff. But I sort of forgot to mention to them that I, I didn't actually have a bike license. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was only a few issues later when I'm sort of riding around the streets of England and on the front cover of the magazine and everything that it dawned on me that I perhaps ought to mention it. But I was so scared about losing the whole, uh, you know, the whole yeah. job and the whole thing that uh, I didn't want to say nothing. So when I told Colin, the guy who owned the magazine, look, I've got a bit of a confession. You know, it's not a biggie, don't worry. Um, <laughs> I don't actually have a bike license. He just absolutely wet himself laughing. 
and demanded that I did it on a 916 SPS, which at the time was like the, you know, the, the and, cream of the crop. And you were allowed to do that then, no? Well, yeah, apparently so. Oh, right. Um, well, I thought you had to be a certain capacity. Or well, no, you start with, the, uh, I can't remember what we start with, like a GS500 Suzuki right, okay. or something like that. And then I think there's like a couple of stages, isn't okay. there? But, um, so we have, we have something in common, because when I first got involved with truck racing, I went off and they gave me these trucks to drive around the road, and I had no HGV or anything or stuff like that. So, <laughs> so it doesn't really matter, does it? No. no. Yeah, yeah, so you need the license when you've got a trailer anyway, don't you? You can take that back bit off and you don't need it anyway, do you? Uh, Chris Eubank used to drive his big Kenworth thing around, didn't he? Yeah, Whatever that's it was. a very good point, actually. I have honestly not... You should not look it up and get another one. But uh, <laughs> when, has the, when has being illegal ever bothered us, anyway? Well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Colin, and I used to get involved with that magazine. It was a great magazine back in its day. It had a huge circulation. And you were the guy that was always seen on the back wheel, pulling wheelies and skidding around and stuff like that. So how did the racing start? Well, the racing had actually started... I'll tell you how the racing started. I got banned from driving, full stop. Right. Um, not if you hadn't got a license, yeah. you wouldn't have got that. Well, can you imagine? <laughs> I, um, I actually got banned from driving cars. And um, at the time, I figured I'd be smart and buy myself a road bike. And I thought, wow, you know, it's got to be the way forward. Not realising that actually the, the licence covered both. And if you lost it for the car, you lost it for the bike right. anyway. But that was like a minor detail. Right. You know, as far as I was concerned, I was banned in a car and that was that. Right. Um, so I bought this road bike and I had it on the road for like six days, blew the thing to smithereens and thought, Do you know what, this ain't working. I got banned from driving cars, not bikes. Um, I've got this bike, I need to go racing. And it was an RGV 250 that I had at the time. Right. So I thought, right, I'll strip it, turn it into a race bike. But I kind of priced that up and realised that was going to cost a fortune and ended up part exchanging it for a race bike that was already done and away I went. That was it? And yep. what, Bemsey Club Racing? Bemsey Club Racing. Two track. I don't know, it's quite funny listening to, to Steve. We were talking about Bemsey and how it was kind of founded here. Yeah. And Dave and Bernadette, who ran Bemsey at the time, were, were really, really kind to me, you know, really helped me out. And I rocked up at this... Um, this track day thing, I guess it's like a track day test day thing or whatever at Lydon Hill. And yeah, it was a little bit damp and it wasn't, it wasn't, it was like February or something like that, probably around this time of the year. Uh, late February, gone out on track and yeah, you know, I'd come from a little bit of motocross, I'm skidding this thing around sideways everywhere and block passing all these, all these track day riders or whatever. And um, Dave Stewart actually had pulled me to one side and gave me one of those talking to's that you mentioned about and mm, uh, mm. essentially said, look, you can't do that, um, but if you do this, 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 this and this, and from there on in, they started helping and you know, away we went. It's pretty quick, though, from what I re remember, you, like, you were pretty, pretty fast up into the National Series anyway. I was, really, I was really quite lucky because I actually genuinely did two track days. I did that day at Lydon where I got nothing but get told off. Mm. And I went and done a track day at Brands Hatch on the Indy circuit. And I used to work in a motorbike shop, right? So I started as a... What bike shop was that? A shop called Colwyn Motorcycles in Sittenborn. Okay. Started off being a mechanic and I really wasn't that great at that. One of my first jobs, in fact, was um, we were a Yamaha main dealer. And this guy bought a brand new at the time, FJ1200 ABS, right? Supposed mm. to be the, the creme de la creme. So the mechanic there says to me, right, I want you to drop the oil out of it. It's done 500 miles. I'm going to put some new oil in it. And I remember him just didn't know no different, right? Give me this torque wrench about as long as this room. And he's like, right, make sure when you've, you know, when you took the oil out, put some plug back in, do it back up, right? So I've got hold of this torque wrench right at the end and I'm pulling it. I'm thinking, cool, I'm getting very tired. <laughs> Next thing you hear it, snap. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> um, Dave, <laughs> about that bolt. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and, right. and that, that was so that. So you got it talked up to 300 foot-pounds or something? Something like that, yeah. Well, anyway, all the guys in this shop, they were like, oh, you know, you've done a bit of motocross, you've knocked yourself about a bit. You know, you wait till you fall off a road race bike, you won't bounce so well then. So this second track day, right, I'm, I'm coming up towards 30s. I don't know if you all know the layout, but on a, on a 400, it was probably 80, 90 mile an hour. And the inevitable happened, and I fell off. So I've, I've lost the front slid along and I'm laying and I think, oh no, this is going to work, 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 it's going to work, here comes the pain, here comes the pain. Hit the grass and come to a standstill. <laughs> it don't hurt at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, shortly after I found out that they actually do quite yeah, Eventually, yeah. eventually, <laughs> obviously it does and the situation we're in now. But though, then the National Series came along and uh, who was your first sponsor then as such? Well, I, um, I was very lucky that, you know, I probably ended up paying for maybe three or four rounds. So everything I had... Money from I, the bike shop that you... Yeah, I, I bought myself. I was working on London Underground at the time. Oh, OK. Um, not driving I'd, a train. I got the sack from being a mechanic. I wasn't right. very good. <laughs> right. Um, but no, not driving a train, no. no. I, I did have a go at that, though. There's, there is no policeman in there, is there? We used to work in this thing, right? And essentially what would happen is we'd, we'd get sent off as gangs into whichever tube station. We'd have to go and fix, like, change sleepers, change rails. Sometimes we'd, like, change whole stations. But there was this one particular time we're in the sort of west of London and we're at this um, place where they keep all the trains, basically, mm. and do some, some maintenance work on them. And my dad was, like, the the boss as such, so I didn't really have to work that So he got you the job? Yeah, he got me the job, oh. yeah. <laughs> I was absolutely useless at everything else. Anyway, I uh, said to my dad, oh, dad, I need to go for a wee or whatever, and I disappeared off into this, um, I guess you call it like a hangar, like if it was a, an aeroplane place, mm. and there's a load of trains in there, so I've snuck into one of these trains, and I did have a bit of a do, actually, going backwards <laughs> and forwards, but don't, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Health and safety. I reckon I could have pulled it off. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, um, but his first sponsor was. You must. Have, I, uh, I'm trying. Did, did Fastbike help you a bit then? Fastbike's helped me a little bit. Um, I was sponsored by a guy, a guy called Alf Cooper, who had a company called Cotswold Communications. Right. And a former. Well, it wasn't British Superbikes then, but a former British champion, Mark Linscott. Um, oh, yeah, I remember him. He. Yeah, he'd be a bit younger than you, a bit older than me. Yeah. But he, he kind of helped me out, and he worked for Alf at the time. And um, Alf was like this guy that was essentially going through a midlife crisis and bought himself a couple of race bikes, and Mark persuaded him that it'd be a good idea to give me one to use in the, in the Bemsey 600 Championship in 97. And, you know, Alf could use the other one. So we'd both do the, the novice and the, and the super sport championships. And, yeah, I, I got going from there and... and I don't think we really lost many races from no. like that year. Mm. Um, and then up we went. And it did go up and up and up. And, and uh, what impresses me about you, Shaky, is that you've kind of been done everything really well, Superbikes, MotoGP, British Superbikes, and, and so on and so on. If you had to say, where was the greatest thrill from? I mean, I remember you riding that flipping Aprilia thing in MotoGP. <laughs> that, that did hurt, didn't it? Yeah, that was... a that, Put airs on my chest, that did. It was, uh, that was a man's bike. Yeah. Um, it's really difficult because, you know, you'd love uh, the idea, obviously, you know, you, you start this journey and you, you dream of being world champion and, and nothing other than world champion is, is going to... MotoGP gonna is the pinnacle, isn't it? It's it is, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I was, I was kind of coming through in an era where you had your Schwantzes and your Rainies and, and there was no you know, UK guys or British guys, you know, since Barry, mm. um, you know, the British scene had all gone pretty quiet, hadn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. So, 
five hundreds really wasn't the place that you that you'd look. You know, you had, you had some guys that would go there on 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 crap bikes and not do very well. Mm. But you know what? It doesn't matter. You know, you you bring Lewis Hamilton and you put him in a car that's the worst car in Formula One. He'll be the worst guy in Formula One plus a little bit mm. because that's how it is. You know, the bikes yeah. the bikes at that level sort of semi dictate you know where you're going to finish, which is why you know right now we've got. Hondas and Ducatis, maybe Yamahas every now and again, sort yeah. of there or thereabouts. But, you know, take one of those riders off of the Honda and put them on whatever's yeah. the worst bike and, and, and the results change is how it is. Um, so it's difficult, to, it's difficult to quantify. I wanted to go, I want to be world champion. I still do. I don't think it's going to happen now, but mm. I, uh, I still do. And, and, and in some ways, not making that, not becoming world superbike champion, for instance, you know, kind of, it's like hard to take. Mm. I think that... I, I thought I had the, the ability to go all the way, but like you say, you know, you spread yourself a little bit thin, you have a couple of years in MotoGP that weren't quite so successful, and then you go to World Superbike and things mm. don't work out, and then you end up back in BSB, but I've had a lot of fun doing that. I mean, you, have, you basically, I guess that's, yeah, it, it's worked for you, you've been on really good equipment and everything else, but, but back in those MotoGP days, and I was there commentating, you and Jeremy on that Aprilia. You remember when you smashed the hire car up in Turkey? <laughs> We went through, let me tell you now, right, right, Steve Hamilton here is driving, right? (laughs) I'm there working for BBC. Let's just start the story off, because you... No, uh, don't, don't, don't. Hang on a minute. What about my little... (laughs) Listen to this. This was brilliant, right? (laughs) So you go through uh, towards Istanbul to go to where are the... Turkey, uh, wasn't it? Turkey, yeah. To go towards this um, thing, and there's this um, payage, right? And I said to him, I said, uh, we've been stopping at this thing for like three days. I said... Lift the boot up. He's like, what are you on about? And the car had a button in the thing, didn't it? We lifted the thing up, didn't we? We went flat Had the number plate through. on the boot, so as yeah. soon as you lift the boot up... We didn't have to pay the toll. No. Yeah. Genius. Yeah. It was genius. But then he smashed the car up anyway. <laughs> but you were there commentating with me, actually. I was, I think, yeah. was that your first commentating job? I think it was, yeah. I think it probably was, actually. And it all happened, going back a little bit, my co-commentator at the time was Charlie Cox. And we'd been in Australia for the round before, and Coxie had a flipping heart attack, or something happened to him. I, I don't know what went on, but we were at Phillip Island, and someone said, Charlie's in the medical centre, he's had a heart attack. And I said, oh, bollocks, he hasn't. Uh, and anyway, I get down there, and sure enough, they've got all pipes coming out of him, and this, that, and the other. And he had had a heart attack. So Belinda Rogerson, who was a producer, decided that it wasn't right for him to commentate. Who are we going to get to commentate? So I said, Jake, you'll do it, because you were out of a ride with Camel or Yeah, Aprilia the, the or? Camel thing started and then went off. I, no, I think it was the, um, KTM, wasn't it? Oh, it was KTM, yeah. Kenny had a big fallout with the Austrians. And That's right, yeah. Shaky had a big fallout with <clears> the <throat> So, um, Shaky comes along to commentate. Two rounds we did, didn't we? We definitely did Turkey and there was another one. I'm sure we did two rounds. But, or maybe you didn't want to come to the second one after the car hire thing. I've <laughs> been in turmoil ever since. But, actually, I do remember it because we were coming out of the circuit and I got the corner a bit wrong and we ended up yeah. at the gas station. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> we took like a third gear right in like fifth gear and just went straight through the middle we of the road. We went through a ditch and ended up in a gas station and yeah. it burst both tyres. Yeah. 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 Steve called Belinda and said, this, what did you tell her? Like a dog run out in front of us or something, yeah. didn't you? <laughs> I had to avoid the dog. <laughs> yeah, we got away with it, didn't she we? She was an animal lover. Yeah, we did yeah. get away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so uh, you've embarrassed me enough. Um, but that Aprilia thing was a bit of a nightmare, wasn't it, with Jeremy? Well, you know what? It, the problem with the Aprilia thing was this, right? When, you're, when you've just won your first British Superbike Championship, you've had a really successful season, and you win, 
you know, you do a wild card and you win both the races at Brands Hatch and World Superbike. I wanted to go to World Superbike. You know, the ideal step for me would have been to jump on the Fila Ducati at the time, yeah, I think it was. Right. You know, Neil Hodgson won the championship that year and he was going off to MotoGP and I wanted to take his place and right. get on the, would have been on the, the World Superbike. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that wasn't there. Um, there were two options for me, basically, to... To stay in the UK, well, free. There was an option to stay in the UK, which I didn't want to do because I figured if you stand still, you might as well go backwards. That's, yeah. not, that's not the way in racing, right? Um, I could go to the AMA and race for Austin Ducati or whatever they were called, the big factory Ducati team in America. Yeah. Um, or I had the option, I had a call from Aprilia in uh, the MotoGP team. And, you know, they basically put together this package. And, and this is sometimes the things that, that people don't see. You know, you might see a rash decision to, to, to jump into MotoGP and think, oh, well, you know, just done that to get out of BSB. But actually what I signed was um, a three-year deal, right? And the deal was based on doing a test or two on the, on the current bike that set Colin Edwards on fire. So that was a result. <laughs> and then um, there was a new bike, which supposedly Noriyuki Haga and, and Colin had been developing um, throughout that season. And after the first two European tests, we'd be on this new bike. Aprilia expected the new bike to be better, but knew I was new to MotoGP. So they gave me um, a year to learn the tracks, a year to get better and to you know, have a proper go at it, and then the option of a third year. So it was no sort of short-term, oh, I know what I'll do, I'll just go and do MotoGP for a year. It was like a proper thing. But unfortunately for us, when... Um, when Aprilia did the deal, everything was cool and Aprilia owned Aprilia, but five minutes later, Piaggio bought them and said, your MotoGP bike, shit, we don't want to do it no more. So, right. I was like, all right, okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was, that was us. But Most then, importantly, did you get a three-year contract pay? I got two. Oh, okay, all right. And I got paid by KTM. That's right, so I remember I that you went up. for KTM. Yeah. Right, okay. Right Which result. was also not real yeah. good. It wasn't brilliant. No, but KTM were absolutely convinced, right? They, I mean, if you, if you put two opposite ends of the scale, you had the, the Aprilia, which was like a fire-breathing, absolute monster of a thing, smashed me and Jeremy to bits on yeah. numerous occasions. And then you had the KTM, which, like our team axis, you could probably ride to the shop. That? Someone over here. Kurt Treeb was the guy. He came from Formula One. Right. It was so... The, the power delivery was so linear and so soft that when you got on the throttle in the middle of the corner, it was almost like the, not that it had a throttle cable, but it was almost like the throttle cable was an elastic band because by the time it had built its momentum up and got going again, you were already out of the corner and been passed by about four bikes. But then, once it got going, it was all right. Then Ilmore. That was nothing to do with me. Jeremy went and rode That was that, Jeremy rode out. Yeah. Right, okay. But that was... I spoke with them. It's funny, right? Um, what's his name? Who's the uh, chassis builder? Eskil Suter. Yeah. So Eskil Suter was going to run the job, right? And um, Ilmore called me up, said, look, what are you doing? We were speaking to Andrew Pitt, we were speaking to Jeremy. Um, Eskil Suter wants to speak to you. So I said, right, okay. Now, I don't mean this to sound arrogant because I'm really not an arrogant person at all, right? But Eskil Suter comes on the phone and he's like, shaky, this is Eskil Suter. And I said, oh, how are you doing? All right. He's finished, um, is he? He's uh, Swiss. <laughs> Swiss. Is that not a good Swiss accent? Yeah, one bad, one bad. Anyway. He, uh, he starts talking to me and he's like, I need to know your resume. I need to know what you've done. And I said to him, are you for real? And he went, what do you mean? I said, well, I've been in MotoGP. I've won World Superbike races. I'm British Superbike champion. And that, that, that's what I've done. Yeah, have a look. And he's like, this is not enough. And I said, well, do you know what? <laughs> Boom. <laughs> he put the phone down because I thought, 
if the guy that if the guy that's supposed to be running the show knows nothing about you and nothing about your ability or, or has no interest in in sort of dealing with you in a in a professional manner, then what's the point in going forward? And it turns out it was the right answer because I think yeah. two rounds in they they quit yeah. anyway. Didn't they? It, well, it wasn't real good. There's, there's no doubt about it. Well, supers. Um, that was on the sterile garter bike. That's right. Yeah. That was one of those those situations, right, where you you know every day's a school day, right? You never stop learning. Well, I don't think you do anyway. No. So, I don't know if you'll recall, but the year 2008, I won my second championship in BSB for Airwaves Ducati. And 2008 was the year that Troy Bayliss was retiring from World Superbike. Yeah. And he did the, the double win at the end of the year in Portimao. And the Ducati factory had basically teed it up so that I'd step up from... Um, from BSB as, as champion into Troy's seat. Troy was happy with that, I was happy with that, everything was fine. But somehow or another, right at the last, last, last minute, Noriyuki Hago got, got the rider as the, as the factory rider. So they said to me, don't worry, don't worry, we have another seat. We have the Sterile Garda team, you know, Max Biaggi's been in there, Ruben Zaus has been in there. Great team, really, really well funded. Well, the thing, <laughs> the thing that we didn't realise was that Max Biaggi was the was the well-funded bit, you know, with with him, the you know the Dorner money or whatever money, FIM money or whatever right, it was, right. you know, kind of followed him around a little bit. So um, we get to yeah, I rode the GSE bikes, won the championship. The bikes were absolutely beautiful the whole time, mm. absolutely immaculate. Colin Wright done a great job. And I turned up at Portimao, and uh, it was the first year that World Superbike had been to Portimao, so Max had jumped off a couple of times and Ruben had jumped off a couple of times. So I rock up there with, with Terry Reimer, who at the time was managing me, and he'd done this deal, and, and you know, Ducati were like, look, we'll put you in this team, and then we'll give you a, you know... Well, you contracted be some progression. Ducati still. Yeah, right. yeah it was all, all going to be cool, right? And I turned up at this, uh, at this test, like the journalist day, like a couple of days later, and uh, Marco Bocciani, before I walked into the garage, he said to me, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I said, well, what's wrong? And he said, uh, we have no more spare parts. And I walked into the garage, I'd tell you what, these, these supposed like factory Max Biaggi supervisors were like, held together with like, duct tape and screws and rivets. And <laughs> here we go, it's going to be a long year. But um, yeah, essentially Max's money never came. And yeah. I had a teammate actually, um, and he'd won the Superstock Championship for him that year, I think, right. Alex Polita. But um, before he even got going, they decided that, I think he did a test at Portimao, and then they had to sack him off because they didn't have the money to run the two riders and you know, barely had the money to, to do the job of us. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible career in any sport, I'm sure, but particularly in motorcycle racing, maybe motor racing and whatever. You come to all these crossroads, don't you? And, you, and There must have been times when you sat there and going, well, do I go this way, do I go that way, do I go that way and everything else. And do you look back thinking, if only at times? I do think, if I'm honest, that if I had my time again, um, I'm, I'm, uh, listen, I'm me, right? I've made some, I've made some decisions with my, my heart rather than my head, you know? Right. Never, I've never chased uh, a bigger paycheck over a more competitive bike. And there's times when things could have been a lot better, mm. you know, both financially and machinery-wise. And you think to yourself, Oh, if I'd have just done that. Your, your mates, right? Lester and Steve Harris, two of the best guys in British racing, I think. And um, they were the guys that gave me my shot on a superbike in 99 through Fast Bikes, through Colin Schiller. And 
Lester and Steve at the time were... Was that an SP1 Honda? Yeah, that was 2000. But yeah. in 99, yeah. they were running the, the Kawasaki British Superbike team yeah. with um, Hizzy and Chris Walker. Yeah. Yeah. And they built a, a spare bike out of a few bits and, and gave me my shot, right? Now, at the end of the year, um, Kawasaki gave me a ride on the factory bike and I beat Troy Bayliss and Chris and him were fighting for the championship and you know they, they held that in very high regard and offered me a ride for 2000. But Lester and Steve got the SP1 that you mentioned mm -hmm. um, and asked me to stay with them. Now, the SP1 turned out to be a turd. Turd, yeah. And the Kawasaki was really, really good. But my loyalty to the guys that had helped me in the first place right. probably cost me right. you know, a much better shot at getting up the ladder quicker. But at the end of the day, Hindsight's a wonderful uh, thing. Yeah, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I think, truthfully, you know, you should follow your heart, shouldn't you? I mean, the, yeah. it, at times, that's, you want, you've got to be, particularly in our sport, you've got to be doing it with your heart, haven't you? It's, yeah. all, it's all about that. Now, something that's always interested me, and I know you'll be very truthful about this, I am seeing more and more now people, riders particularly, being very, very happy and being more content and probably being faster by being married and having children. Back in my day, nobody did that. And it's working. That's because you all made fortunes. You was off shagging prostitutes. Well, <laughs> I resemble that remark. <laughs> um, but that, that was the thing in my day. It was just being as single as you possibly can, travelling the world, doing as much damage as you possibly could, making Anglo relationships better with other countries and things like that. <laughs> that was really what it was all about. Um, there would never have been a Brexit if we'd have been carrying on. But, anyway. um, but more and more riders I talk to feel more comfortable, they feel more at ease, they feel better having a family around them now, and they seem to be faster. Is that something that worked with you? I think, you know, obviously I wasn't racing when, when you were racing, right? But I look back at, at the years that you were racing and look at the 500s and, and look at the way things were, and it seems to me that, you know, life in general now, um, regulations and, and, and everything else has got so much more anal and so much more uptight. You know, yeah. you guys, you guys, like you said, went off travelling the world, had a giggle, doing whatever you were doing. absolute chaos. Yeah. There, there, just for start, there was a, one rider on the grid called Walter Migliorati, and Walter Migliorati, every start of a 500 Grand Prix, he wasn't that good, he was sort of midfield, 10th place man. He always had the knickers of the girl he had the night before on his head. <laughs> that was his balaclava. And that, <laughs> Do you know what? One of my old mechanics, I won't tell you what team, right, but he used to keep a similar sort of situation. Mixed audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he used to keep them in his toolbox. Oh, really? Yeah. Did he? Oh, OK, all right. Yeah, he used to bring them a three, wrap, or, four, wrap three, or, four, three or four pairs a weekend. <laughs> wrap your snap-ons in them or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Okay. He told me that I should have a revolving door on the motorhome rather than one that just opens and closes because it would have been much easier. <laughs> um, but but back anyway, back to this, um, yeah, back to this... this <laughs> This other thing. So, you know, you guys, it, it looked to, to me now as a, as, a, as a racer in sort of current times that everything was that much more laid back, that much more fun and that much more enjoyable. Well, everything now has got really, really anal and, you know, flipping out, you've only got to think about driving off your driveway without your seatbelt on and you're going to probably get, like, locked up for it. You know, Unless you you're Prince it, Philip. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. But, see, even he can't do it now. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but, yeah. I think that um, the whole thing for me of, of having children, when you're, when you're coming up and through, right, you try and, you try and say, look, absolutely no way that guy who's got a mortgage and he's got two kids to feed and he's got nappies to pay for or whatever can be as committed as I can mm. because, you know, I'm me, 
Yeah. I can I can do whatever at a drop of a hat. I can train all day. I've got nothing to look for. You know what I mean? Nothing other than my job in in in, your in life. my You're life. Focused, yeah, that's, aren't you? that's me. Yeah. But you know what? I spent I spent probably the first five or six years of my superbike career trying to convince team managers of that. And then a little bit later in my career, I did settle down. I did have a go get a wife. I did have a son. And it's it's really really funny, you know, because. I think when, when things are going really, really well for you and you're winning all the time, everything's easy. Mm, you know? sure, Everybody's your sure. mate. You're the best rider in the world. Yeah. You, you do this. Nobody's got your talent. Nobody's got your experience. It's all you hear around you. It's like a constant thing, like feeding your Yeah, ego. everyone's saying yes, aren't they? Yeah. And then you get a second or a third place, especially at PBM, and you're like the biggest banker in the world who needs to retire because you're too old now. Mm. But yeah. when you go back to the motorhome, right, and your little boy who's six months old looks up to you and, and smiles at you and, and makes everything right again, all of a sudden you realise, do you know what, it doesn't matter what they think, mm. because all you're ever going to get from me is my absolute best. Mm. I can't give you more than that. Okay, so if my absolute best on any given day is a win, mm. perfect. If it's a double, great. If it's a gentleman's set with pole, double win, fastest laps, even better, right? But if my best on that day is a third, that's my best on that day. Mm. All right? Sure. Nobody's, nobody's invincible, but... Zach will smile at me exactly the same when I walk in the motor room. If I've had a tenth, a fifteenth, a first, a seat, he didn't know. No. And I think that, that that does calm you down. It does take away some of the some of the pressure that you do get from from teams nowadays to you know to perform and to do what you got to do. I guess you could have had a dog, but no, <laughs> no I'm joking. But no, shit in the but, motor but room. I, I, actually, <laughs> I, I can looking back on it, I can understand that. And Johnny Ray kind of is committed by that. He says exactly the same as you part of his life he can actually relax a little bit more at times he can sometimes disappear even in the paddock mm. he can disappear from that cutthroat world that we all live in where everyone's trying to get up the inside of everyone and dive up the inside and someone's trying to get your job and the mechanic's not happy and this and you can go away probably chill a little bit relax and as you rightly say you've got undiluted love coming from you there mm. and go back out there slightly refreshed yeah, I'm, I'm so. sort of understanding that a little bit now it just... I think that some racing paddocks are, are a little bit like um, a soap opera, you know, like you, you go to BSB, it's like being in EastEnders, it's just there's a bunch of snakes that are acting rather than uh, Ian Bill and uh, <laughs> whoever yeah. else that's in EastEnders. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a great place, as I said just a minute ago, you know, when everything's going right and you're winning and you're successful, yeah. you are, it wouldn't matter if you was 85 years old rocking up on the grid, if you was getting pole well, he's got so much experience, you know, yeah. he's so fast still, he could do this, he can yeah. do that, but if you was 85 years old and you finished second, wow, well, I don't even know what he's doing, risking yeah. his life at his age, he ought to have retired years ago, yeah. but it, it, it's, just, it's just how it is. Unfortunately, that is the, the kind of the, the sport that we've got and the love of it, and it wouldn't be the same actually, whether it be football, tennis, cricket, you know, you, you're unfortunately, you're easily judged, aren't you? That's the difference. At the end of that day, on Sunday evening, you have got a position there. Whereas if you're perhaps, I don't know, selling biscuits or something, it, it's not quite as defined. And I, and I think you're going to find this, and I know you're going to be good at TV because you're doing it already. You're also, you're not going to get away from it. There's always going to be someone up the inside of you trying to get your job doing that and someone doing it a bit cheaper for you and this and that and the other. And unfortunately, we live in this very competitive... That's why I spend so much time around you, trying to learn all the tricks. You, you are trying to learn, <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm redundant and old now. <laughs> but I think... 
um, it, it's a very interesting situation how things have changed. Arguably, I think, and I'm just using my side of experience, maybe back in my day it was a bit more dangerous and you possibly didn't want to put a family through that because there was more people dying left, right and centre. Now, don't get me wrong, you've had a, a bad accident recently, but I am absolutely intrigued to see how more and more people are looking at their sport and the way they can chill and relax a little bit more by doing other things as opposed to being, because you can burn yourself out, can't you? Mm. You can be 99% of the time focused doing that thing and you burn out and stuff like that. Now, you've got to tell me, uh, Jeremy Williams told me this story, and I don't know if you can confirm or deny this. Donington. If it's from Jeremy, I'll deny it. Deny it. <laughs> um, was, there a, uh, was there a doorbell under your motorhome at one point? Oh. I, I have to say, I gave him points for this because I thought it was quite funny. But I didn't. This, no, I know you didn't. Jeremy McWilliams, who you got a kind of love-hate relationship with you two. I know you have because it's like been very, very competitive. He's the old bloke. You're, you're going to be saying, "What the hell's he doing out there?" This, that, now, and you're the young sub. But Jeremy told me he got a and a lot. Of, you know those um, blue, not Bluetooth, but like uh, electronic doorbells that have got a range of ten yards or something. You stick it on your door outside, and you can door press it and it goes to a ringer inside your house and stuff like that. Now they put, Jerry put one under his motorhome and you thought... He put it underneath the sofa in my motorhome yeah. and I bought this big trick motorhome, right? I got a MotoGP, I thought, right, Brand new, it. wasn't it? Big, big Making a statement. Slide outs all over the place. I thought I was the boy, right? So I'm in there and I've got my revolving door on and it seems like every time I'm, I'm making a cup of tea, this doorbell goes off. <laughs> and uh, I'll be like... There it goes again, there it goes again. It's got to be a smoke detector. It's got to be something. Just wait there, wait there. It won't be a minute. And I've been running around the motorhome looking for this flipping thing that was going off. It took ages to find out. And, yeah, they used to be looking out the window, pressing the button, watching them doing this. And this and I must admit, I thought it was quite funny. And in fact, I've used it myself since. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really good, yeah. I've got it under my wife's bed. If it weren't for the... <laughs> um, you, you mentioned a little bit a while ago, Paul Bird, um, Obviously, a great patron of our sport. He spent a lot of money doing it, but it's got to be tough because he hasn't got so many commercial interests in, in the situation as most other teams. Yeah, it's funny with Paul, you know, because I've been, uh, I've been really fortunate and, and, and our relationship worked well because he expects results, he pays for results, and, and fortunately, I, I delivered them quite well. Mm. But, you know, he... You find yourself in a bit of a in a bit of a cocoon, if you like, because Paul does not care who he upsets. Couldn't care less. It could be his dad, could be his kids, it could be the closest person to him. The RAC rally people. Yeah, he don't like them much. Um, <laughs> he, um, but because of that, you know, you have this kind of freedom in in racing where you know what if if. The Kawasaki was a crap bike that day. Kawasaki was a crap bike that day. You know, you couldn't go and say as an official Kawasaki rider, do you know what, the bike weren't up this weekend. Right. I gave my best and we just didn't get the bike right because Kawasaki or whoever put the money into the team wouldn't appreciate that. If, if the Kawasaki weren't right that day and, and I had a bad result, Paul would be like, fucking Kawasaki, piece of shit. I'm fucking selling them and getting something else. Just and dump it. Did not care. Right. Did not care at all. Um, as I said earlier on, it's, it goes back to that same thing. When everything's good and you're winning, right. easiest guy in the world to work for. Mm. Finish second or third, <laughs> mm. yeah, 
Right. He might talk to you in a few months' time. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, um, it, it is quite difficult because, as you rightly say, you can't knit quite as well in a team because it, usually you've got one focus, and that is to make that product and that rider go forwards. But if, if, you're, if you're in a position, as he clearly is, he can just tell someone to sod off and get something else, and it makes it tougher on the rider in lots of ways. Yeah, his, his, um, his people management skills just, just require a little bit of development. <laughs> um, and I don't wish to pry too much, but how come he doesn't have to work? Because <laughs> his dad's worth about 450 million quid, I think. Right, okay, right, <laughs> and okay. has the biggest, so, uh, the biggest poultry farm in Europe, doesn't right, he? But so. his brother does work, doesn't he? His brother does, yeah. His brother... I mean, Paul claims he does. Um, I think by working, what he does is goes in and shouts at everybody and then just right. goes down into the... Uh, so he has this big... Um, chicken farm in Penrith, and you you go in there, and in the in the corner of this this chicken farm is like a, a purpose-built workshop where the where the team is based, and he basically goes into his office upstairs, screams and shouts at everybody, and then comes down into the race team and gets in his helicopter and yeah, just goes and lives the dream. Okay, all right, sounds good if you can get it. But he was quite a reasonable motocross rider. He was 500 Grand Prix rider. Yeah, yeah, no, really good. Yeah, um, he. <laughs> He's quite a good rally driver by all accounts. He's not allowed to do it no more, but right. he's, um, he's, he's, uh, his son actually is testing the rally car now. I saw recently that Frank... I did see that. that, and he's just been out in Dubai racing in Formula Renault, I think his son is. Uh, and um, GTs. Okay. Uh, for the same team. Uh, well, for the Sicily motorsport team. Right. Okay. They've got like a GT4 car or something, an okay. AMG GT4 car, and he went and tested that. Oh, I think right. they've they done really well. Yep. Really okay. well. Um, and again, not wishing to pry, you kind of... Parted on reasonable terms? <laughs> no. It's difficult with Paul. Um, you know, as you say, everybody everybody has a has a shelf life. Um, and I wouldn't say we've fallen out. No. But he still hasn't told me that I'm not riding for him this year, although I don't think it's going to happen anyway. But <laughs> You're going to turn up? At... I, I might do, actually. I might just get Alpine Stars to make me some new levers. All right, boys, let's go. <laughs> the doctor would be like... <gasps> oh, <that's laughs> um, yeah, it's... Oh, okay. uh, he's, Paul's all right. Paul's cool. Yeah, OK. Um, back, so he jumps in his helicopter. You loving helicopters. Yeah, I'm back up flying again at the minute, actually. I've been, but you started uh, some many years ago. Yeah. You started doing it, then you stopped, then you've now started again. Costs a fortune, doesn't it? I know it does. Don't tell me. That's why I've got a fixed wing. Get one of them. They're half the price. Mm. <laughs> Which makes it all that much easier. Yeah. I did, do you know what? I did eight hours. I think, do you probably remember, right? In 2002, I was, um, I was living in Sittingbourne and Rochester Airfield's quite close, right? I decided I was going to learn to fly planes. So I've gone to Rochester and uh, I've got this, this guy, an older gentleman, who I'm fairly sure... Thought he was Biggles. Mm. Um, I've gone up with him. We've done a we've done a trial lesson. He's given me the yoke, given the pedals, had a cruise around. Mm. Oh, this is easy. Mm. Mm. Now there's no problem. So anyway, I've gone back up for another one. Like a week or so later on, I said, "Yeah, I reckon I can do this. I reckon I could. I'd have a go at doing my license." So he said, "Right, okay." And uh, we finished the lesson. The lesson had gone really, really well. Done a load more flying. I hadn't taken off or landed or anything yet, but I sort of had control when we were up in the air. Still thought I had it dialed. Anyway, get down, and he's like, right, okay, so you want to you do your course? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he walked into this, uh, into this little back room. He come back out with about 15 books, all about that fat, and he went, you've got to learn this before you can go solo. You've got 10 hours to learn it. You need to do that exam, that exam, that exam, that exam. And uh, 
basically, from here on in, we need to do some classroom work. And this guy turned this, um, turned this aeroplane flying thing, the thing I wanted to do and I thought was going to be really, really cool, into, like, just the, the complete and utter mm. arsehake. Yeah. And I'm... I'm not Charles Darwin. You went to school, didn't you? I went to school. Oh, okay. I'm not... I'm not, uh, I'm not Einstein. No. But I'm, I'm not a div either. No. Um, but I just looked at all this stuff, and you know when you think to yourself, you're deliberately making this harder than it needs to be? And I did about six hours, got to the point where I was taking off, and I was landing, and I was flying about. But he was like, right, have you learned air law yet? I was like, no. Mm. Done one more lesson. You've learned air, you're like, no. Mm. Well, you don't really much point to go much further. So I said, you know what? Don't want to do it anyway. Right. Um, so I gave up on the aeroplane thing, but... The but, helicopter thing's completely different. But you've, you've obviously had to do all that stuff, but, but someone obviously got you into it in a nicer way, I guess. Cheated. Oh, OK. Yeah, no. it's easy to cheat it. Honestly, no. I did. <laughs> I did. So, I did. <laughs> you've never seen so much writing on the inside of someone's palm in your life. <laughs> they put me and my test in the, cl in the classroom. It had all the books in it. Did they? Yeah. yeah I took my phone. Uh, but then need, I, I, I was a bit more... I was later than you. Right, I mean, we okay, could yeah. get the internet and everything right, by then. Okay. Um, what happened... I went down and I, this guy, right, come up to me at Brands, and he was like, oh, uh, would you like to go up in a helicopter? And I thought, do you know what, I'd love to, really love to. I've been fascinated with him since I was a kid. So he arranged for this flight for me, went up in a Jet Ranger, mm. and I absolutely loved it. He's like, oh, do you want to have a go? Blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, I'd love to. And had a little go of the controls and whatever else. Now, I've got to tell you that an air, flying a helicopter and flying a, a light aircraft are, are completely different, all right? Yeah. So when, when Steve takes off, very capable pilot, but he could take off and essentially what he can do is either set his autopilot or trim his aeroplane so that it will fly on a heading. Um, you always fly off headings for an amount of time, change heading and that will get you to wherever you're going to go and then when he gets near where he's going to go, he'll take control of the thing again and land it and that's it, job done. But in a helicopter, you get up in a helicopter, you let go of one stick for about two seconds and the thing wants to spiral into the floor. Um, now that might sound a little bit iffy but the... The, the thing with that is, it means you always have to control it. So you're always doing something. And, you know, like if we took this bit of paper now, right? Oh, Steve's notes on Let's just make sure he's not going to yeah, tap yeah. me up first. Um, so you put a ball bearing on that bit of paper and you start to tilt that paper like that, right? Or like that, or like that. Well, that's essentially what the cyclic of a helicopter does. So when you put that ball bearing and you turn that that way, it's going to roll that way. But to, to counter-react that, you've got to go double that way to keep the thing straight. So essentially what I'm trying to tell you is it's hard to fly an helicopter as a piece of piss to fly a plane. <laughs> but I can fly helicopters. <laughs> Unless you're rich, because my mate's got an R66 and he's put an autopilot in it. Now he can just let go of it all and everything else like that. But yeah, I have flown. I've done quite a lot of hours in a helicopter and you're absolutely right, they don't want to fly, you have to fly them the whole time and then, then it makes navigating hard and it makes everything else hard. I've got an iPad for that. Oh, you, oh, you, I've got that. Uh, Skyscanner. Uh, yeah, first. Not Skyscanner. Sky Demon. Sky, Sky Demon. Demon, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, but, but never the get less, it's harder to look at stuff and do things and change your radio frequencies when you've got both hands full. Yeah. You had a bit of a scare, actually, didn't you, over the coast of Belgium or somewhere, Holland? Holland, yeah. Years ago it was, right? I'd I, um, I just converted to... to I'd, I'd done... The majority of my hours in a, in a Robinson 44, which is a, a piston-engine version of the helicopter Steve just mentioned, great training helicopter. Usually people learn in a 22, which is a two-seat version of the 44. Mm. Um, I'd done all of my training in the 44 and then converted into, into jet-engine, jet-ranger helicopter. Um, but because I'd done so much just recently in the 44, I, wanted to fly, I was in MotoGP at the time, and I was going to World Superbike, um, at Assen to, to discuss going World Superbike racing in 2006. 
So I said to my instructor lady that, that used to teach me, I want to rent the, the 44, I want to take it over to Holland. So she said to me, you can't. I said, what do you mean I can't? And she was like, have you got a map? So I've got a Garmin. Sky I need a map. No, I didn't have that one out there. Um, I bought this Garmin thing, right? It's typically me, all the gear, no idea. I've got this Garmin, I'm like, that'll be absolutely fine. She went, what if the satellite goes down? So, oh. You know, someone's always got an answer for something, right? So she's like, you're going to have to get a map. I said, well, where do I get a map from? I need to go to Holland, like, today. And she's like, you can't. You're going to have to fly down to Shoreham, uh, which is down near Brighton. There's an airfield down there, and there's a shop at Shoreham called Transair. Go and buy your maps, come back, and then the next day you'll have to go. So long story short, got all that done. Got to... Um, Couldn't she lend you a map, for goodness sake? Too tight, wouldn't you? I bet she had one as well. Yeah, I bet she did, yeah. Mm. Do you know what? I'm going to ask her. Yeah. I'm supposed to be flying tomorrow. Yeah, I've got a phone here. Put it on, yeah, text me. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I got there, like six o'clock in the morning, ready to go to Holland, right? Never flown over the channel before, never flown over water before, and, and just thought, ah, it's no problem, it's just a helicopter, it'll be fine. So anyway, go through all the procedures, you have to ring the airport that you're going to go into, I'm supposed to go into Rotterdam to get fuel, and then on up to um, Assen. So I'd planned this route in my, in my GPS thing that I bought, this Garmin thing, Chucked the map in the back of the helicopter anyway, because I didn't need that. And then took off, and Janet said to me, look, promise me one thing. She said, if you get to the coast of Dover, and you can't see the coast of France, don't go. Right. It's hazy, don't go, right? I said, yeah, no problem. So I had two friends with me, we took off, flew down to Dover, which is literally five minutes in the helicopter. Um, had, we, they had, had they been taking a tablet or anything to sit in the back? Sed yeah, sedation ones. <laughs> um, sat there, and we got to, we got to Dover, and, and we could see France. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't exactly like a 20-mile no. vision day, but we could see France. A bit hazy, yeah. but we could see it. Yeah. So, boys, you happy with that? Yep, happy. Okay, right. So we went across the channel. Now, bearing in mind, I'd spoken to Rotterdam on the phone just before I'd left, and they said everything was fine, weather was fine, come in, grab your fuel, no problem, on up to um, Assen. I thought, right, okay. Gets to France, looks a left, up towards, um, up towards Holland. I'm cruising up the, up the coast a little bit, and I'm thinking, flipping out, it's getting a bit hazy down there. And I was kind of at the point where there was like fog and haze on the floor, a little bit of cloud, and just above the cloud, I kept poking out, and it was bright blue, clear as day, right? I thought, oh, it's clear up there anyway, be fine. So, done the worst thing you can possibly do, right? You fly, you either fly VFR, which is visual flight rules, or you fly IFR, which is instrument flight rules. You need a special license for instrument flying and whatever else. I didn't have it. But I figured that flying up in the clear blue sky was a lot better than flying in the cloud in an helicopter. And I knew that, that Rotterdam obviously was clear. So I'm getting towards Rotterdam and about 20 minutes out from Rotterdam, mm. I radioed Rotterdam and I said, uh, all right, shaky, I'm coming in. I didn't actually say that because you're not allowed to say it. But um, they said to me, uh, helicopter such and such, you, you can't come in. The weather's closed in, we're, we're, we're fogged out. So I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. They said, uh, you're going to have to divert. We're going to have to divert you to another The guys airfield. in the back got a headset on there hearing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they don't have a clue. They don't oh, know oh. what it was on about. So they said to me, you're going to have to divert you. Um, there's an airfield, Schiphol. We want you to go to Schiphol, right? Schiphol. Never flipping heard of it. Mm. Anyway, give me a heading to turn onto to go towards this Schiphol airport, wherever that was. Right. Turns out it's Amsterdam's main airport, and it? it's like the biggest airport in Europe. You'd know it as Schiphol. Yeah. <laughs> I know it a shithole. Um, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> um, so I've, um, 
I figured now I need to get back below this cloud, right? And that's a bit of a problem because helicopters and cloud isn't a, isn't a great combination no, at all. No. So I told my, my two passengers, I said, look, this is a deal, right? Towards the end of your, your course of flying... <laughs> <laughs> almost. <laughs> Towards the end of your, your course of flying, one of the last things you have to do is fly in what they call simulated inclement weather, right? And that involves wearing these funny little glasses that essentially let you see out of the bottom like that, but none of your none of your surroundings right so you can literally mm. only fly pretty much with your with your gauges it's so easy to cheat you just lift your head up mm. a bit like that right mm. i know i did so it. yeah me too um so i passed that part of my test got it all done but you know this was all quite familiar and what you're supposed to do is you pick the head in and you make sure your tail's straight and to do that you have this little bit of string that goes up the center of the, of the windscreen and if the tail's out the, the string goes one way and if the tail's out the other way the string goes the other way right so you pick your head in set your speed and i figured that if i turned out towards the sea i weren't likely to bump into a skyscraper or anything right. and i could go down below this cloud so i said to the boys right boys we're gonna have to go down through the cloud and they're like yeah, yeah, yeah well let's just get there where's the prostitutes blah 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 and all of a sudden i've put this helicopter into a descent right 500 feet per minute we're at 2,000 feet so four minutes essentially you'll be in the water so we start descending and we're going down and we're going down and we're going down and it's getting greyer and darker, and they're getting quieter. And the, the, the people from Schiffel are talking to me, um, you know, my registration, where are you, what are you doing? And I, and I explained that I was trying to get down through this cloud and whatever else. And I keep going and going and going, and by now it feels like an hour, right? And, and can't see a thing. Like, when I tell you, you might as well be like that, you might as well have been like that. But this helicopter is buffeting about in the clouds, and they say, the, the only way you can survive in a helicopter, if you're in cloud, is by completely forgetting your instinct, right? Because your instinct will tell you that yeah. the thing's upside down, backwards, left, whatever else. you just got to look at your dials. Now, you have a pressure setting on the altimeter which tells you exactly how high you are, right? I'd set my pressure setting to what, what Shiffle told me. And we come down to about with 100 feet, maybe 50 feet from the, from the sea itself. And I thought, fucking hell, we ain't getting out of this. So... I've had to level out, right? But just at the point where I've decided, no, we can't go no lower, my mate in the back must have been watching the altimeter and he started screaming. And when I say he started screaming, like he started screaming like a baby. And I absolutely shit myself, right? He pulled power back into the helicopter. And, you know, like obviously the blades spin one way or the other, right? So the, the helicopter wants to rotate on the, on the blade. So if you don't put enough pedal in and you pull some throttle, blades spin faster and the helicopter wants to turn, right? So it's called yaw. And that bit of string on the dash or on the window goes like flipping horizontal. So he started screaming. I've gone like that with the thing. The helicopter's gone sideways. So I'm looking at this dial. The string's pointing over there. And I'm like, oh, no, oh, no. And, and Schiff all runs to me. Are you OK? Are you OK? And I'm like, <laughs> absolutely nothing would come out. Honestly, it was the scariest thing that had ever happened to me. So climbs out, back up, get me a little bit of string straight. and I Back up out of the cloud? Back up out of the cloud, yeah. And I'm like... We've still got like an hour's worth of fuel. It's not a stress, but I'll tell you what. I was done. I just wanted to get out of the thing, right? And get back up into the blue sky and um, ship all radio. I said, look, sorry, couldn't get out, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, keep coming in. The weather's going to clear. So we're going in towards Shipple, which I'm still thinking is some little yeah. farmyard strip or whatever. And all of a sudden, I see this hole in the cloud, right? 
and, and the boys are, are chatting away, and I'm like, well, don't worry, we've got fuel, everything's going to be all right. And then I see this thing, and I'm like, dump the lever and throw the thing down through this thing. My mate's like, ah! <laughs> I'm going down through the cloud, and now we're at like sort of 200 feet, and, and you're not allowed to fly at anything less than 500 feet above any man-made object, right? So we're, we're buzzing in towards this little farm strip at 200 feet, can't see nothing, right? And I'm, I'm concentrating, and they're like, right, uh, such and such, you need to change frequency. You know, you need to, you need to change the tower now. And I'm like, fucking hell. The little farmyard's got a tower frequency as well, so I change frequency, get onto that. Oh, yes, yeah, um, you know, change your transponder. You know, we can see you, you're sort of two miles to run or whatever. And I'm like, right, okay, perfect. Just get me out of this fucking helicopter. Um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I oh, shit you not, right? It was almost like I'd gone... 100 miles in like a split second. I'm, I'm sort of 200 feet coming in like this, and all of a sudden it's just fucking jumbo jets and <laughs> fucking Virgin Atlantic taking off, and there's me buzzing around in this little 44 above them all, and I'm like, oh my God, my head rolled off, absolutely rolled off. And then to top it all off, it was quite a breezy day, and um, they got me onto this runway that they won me on, this little side runway thing, and they held me in a hover, a crosswind hover, for a lot, what felt like, again, like 20 minutes, and I'm sweating. And, and I got out of the helicopter, and the boys were like, you did well there, you did well there. And I'm like, we ain't getting back here. <laughs> Let's just get a taxi home and leave it here. <laughs> Phone up Janet, she can come and get it. <laughs> I absolutely done me. And the funniest thing was, left ship all after probably what was about an hour or something, I'd have got myself together, left Shipple, and the air traffic control guy says to me, uh, right, I want you to depart north of uh, Amsterdam, um, not below 1,500 feet, blah, 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 um, on whatever pressure setting. So I was like, right, repeat the pressure setting, not above 1,500 feet. Got up to about 700 feet and the cloud was there and I turned everything off. Stayed at 700 feet the whole way. <laughs> there you go. You thought you were coming to bike night, but actually it's the CIA, the CIA and we've got a gentleman from the CIA over there yeah. that wants to have a word with you after. <laughs> Don't joke. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I have to say, we've all had a bit of a scare. And, and you learn from them. I mean, if you survive them, you learn from them, and that fixes you up. Uh, TV, uh, going good. You're enjoying doing what you do. Eurosport, working with Matt and the boys. Good team. Um, think that's going to be something that will keep you occupied? Um, I, think, I think in the first, like, in the immediate future, it kind of has to. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not meaning to, to count chickens and just assuming that, that sure. they'll want me. I mean, I'd like to think that we can get something done and, and do that for, for this season because it's not looking um, overly great for a comeback this year. Mm. Not at the moment. I had a, a hospital visit on Tuesday. I was going to say, where are you with your injury? Well, the problem is, um, essentially what happened to me is I slid into a wall head first. Now, if you, if you break your arm, right, Steve will tell you, break your wrist, break your leg or whatever, you normally snap it and they put it straight and sometimes they'll plate it, sometimes they'll screw it, sometimes they'll do whatever. But it's generally like a, a line through a bone, right? And, and it heals up really, really quickly. But my problem is that my, the bottom of my skull, if you like, you know, if you, if you put a CD on the table now, we hit it with a hammer and it just kind of obliterated. Well, that's what's happened to the top two bones of my neck. And the problem with that is... Um, where your spinal cord leaves your brain and comes out and goes into your spine is protected by these two bones that are a little bit like armour, so they're supposed to be complete circles, but mine at the moment are a bit like my pants after that, that, um, <laughs> after that cloud episode, yeah. So there's like little bits of... Uh, of Poo. Yeah, floating about all over the place up here. And, um, yeah, it's causing, it's causing a, few, a few kind of 
frustrating problems at the moment. What, in, in the way it touches nerves or something's not... Yeah, like, just, you know, sometimes... It's difficult. To, I don't really want to get too far. Oh, I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. Yeah, I know. That's what worries me. Um, <laughs> do you know what, right? I don't know. No, I probably shouldn't share that. It's a bit rude. Anyway, it, th there's a few problems. Okay. All right. A few little problems. So our date's not going to be as perfect tonight, then? Not on a minute. Well, okay. All right. <laughs> um, but you're, you're able to function as a person for perfectly okay, you know, as far as that's concerned, and, and, but you don't think you're going to be riding. I, I, um, the, the problem is... Being a being a racer, you know you have you have sort of these these two little things on your shoulders, and one of them's telling you yes, and the other one's telling you yeah. use your brain, mm. and it's a bit like that kind of head and heart situation at the moment. Like my my head's so stubborn that it refuses to give in to the fact that actually I'm a little bit bashed up at the moment, mm. um, and to the point where you know I'd kind of negotiated a few different deals to to ride for this season, but I couldn't I couldn't fulfil the deal or, or, or get too far down the line with anybody because mm. I said, look, you know, I've got a scan in November, followed by a scan in February. If November looks okay-ish mm. and I hang you out to dry at February, you're going to think I'm the biggest twat in the world. Yeah. Yet it's my, it's my heart, it's my passion, it's this, the fact that I want to race a motorbike that would keep you hanging on. Yeah. It's, not, it's not like a, a deliberate, spiteful thing that I'd get you to February or March and say, look, sorry, I can't ride for you mm. because I want to. Mm. But at the same time, you know, we're not we're not talking about a broken finger or a broken toe. Sure. We're talking about we're talking about spinal cord damage and, and all sorts well, of stuff. Well, I'm suspecting, and again, I pretend I'm a doctor, but I do watch Holby City. Um, <laughs> you don't need to bang it again. No, no, no. I definitely, you know, as of uh, as of Tuesday, my doctor told me that I could um, start sitting on a turbo trainer again. And I said to him, well, look, I've got this great idea. I don't know how you feel about it, right? And this is just a typical racer thing. I'm sure Steve exactly the same. said to him, you know, like, you, you get asked a question all the time. So Motorcycle News come down the other week and done a, done a big feature thing with me. I took him flying, whatever else. And he said to me, so how are you? And I said, well, do I, do I really need to answer that question? And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, listen, you know, Ollie and I are good friends, the Motorcycle News reporter. I said, mate, if I tell you, I'm absolutely fine. Mm. You're right. Something along the lines of, mm. yeah, you know, Shaky's doing well. He's in good spirits. You know, all things considered, everything's cool. I said, but if I tell you, I'm in absolute agony. Mm. And by six o'clock at night, I need to have a bit of a lay down because I can't really lift my arms up or something like that. What are you going to write? Mm. What, what's it going to change? It's not really going to change anything. Mm. So how I am and asking how I am doesn't, doesn't really matter because it affects, it kind of affects me yeah. and sometimes my wife and kids yeah. and, and that's it. But until all of this stuff kind of comes together a little bit and, and sorts itself out, you know, if things are going to get better, they're going to take all the, the metal out of my back because they think that might be causing some of the problems right. at the moment. Mm. But they can't take it out unless I'm going to race again. But they're advising me that taking it out at the moment would be a disaster. Right. So you're in like this catch-22 situation where you, know, you want to get better and you want to go racing, mm. but the doctor don't want to take the metal out because you're not strong enough and ready enough for it to come out yet. And if you had another knock, mm. it would be really, really bad. So, so where do you go? You know what I mean? It's, it's, oh, well, it's, uh, but unfortunately, you, you've got to rely upon experts and people that know better. That's probably. exactly why I come see you tonight. Oh, well, I'll be <laughs> examining you a, a little bit <laughs> later on. Um, Brilliant. I uh, love chatting to you. Um, I know we've got a time schedule tonight, 
Steve, do we need a break before we have questions and no, answers? Do you need to get the toilet? Are you all right? Can, I'm all right in a minute. All right, there's no puddles yet, is there? We'll put that bowl <laughs> So, are we all right to carry on? Ladies and gentlemen, Steve uh, Parrish and Shaky Bird. I mean, it, I have been enthralled by this. Thank you very much. Just before we start on these other things, to say that you are with Matt Roberts, who wrote my book with me, going to be doing a book. Yeah. Uh, coming out next year, you think, now? Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, but you're doing theatre shows this year with Matt, I see. Yes. Right. Yeah, we've got all sorts going on at the minute, actually. It's quite good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing them. I think you're all over the country with Matt and so on and so on. It's, if it's anything like tonight, you're going to have a cracking night. Brilliant. But I must just say, if anyone hasn't got one of my books and needs one, <laughs> I have got some. I was only getting round to that, talking about yours, but I have got some at the back room if you need them later on the Apparently he's done five pounds. Sure they will. Yeah, if Shaky signs them, they go down a little. No, we'll have the house lights up now so I can see where I'm going. But, Steve, I've come to the conclusion you could have another career negotiating Brexit. Almost certainly, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just diplomacy. Yeah, yeah, all I need is... We might do, we do a joint act as Prime Minister. Well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, if I put a mask on, I've still got a chance, I think. I? Mm -hmm. yeah, we could do it. Right, ladies it. and gentlemen, questions, please. Sorry to ask this, Shaky, but when we Don't saw... Don't ask it then. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to ask it, but I'm sorry I'm going to ask it. Uh, when we saw you in the cage after the praying, most of us were thinking... It looks like there's no coming back from here. Is there a realistic chance of you getting your neck into a situation where it's strong enough to do this again? Do you want to know the truth? Yeah. Do you all want to know the truth? Well, when I crashed, I was pretty poorly, right? And pretty poorly to the point where my wife had been told, um, I always broke a couple of ribs, but if you come up, you can pick them up from hospital. So she rocked up at the hospital and the, the consultant that was going to perform the operation was there. And he said, uh, are you Mrs. Byrne? So she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, uh, she, she said what, what's all the fuss? He's broke a couple of ribs. And he went, um, no, 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 he's, he's done a bit more than that. And she's like, well, I've been told he's broke a couple of ribs. She, the doctor said to her, listen, let's just talk about saving his life, and then we'll talk about his mobility, right? And... My, my two kids were with her because she pulled them out of school and sort of both of them grabbed a leg each and she was like, what? what? But essentially, um, in the coming sort of three or four days, I was too poorly to have the operation. And what the doctor wanted to do was fuse the top of my neck completely and put these um, bars and rods and plates and whatever else he's done into my spine. But in doing so, I would have had a, a sort of strong neck, a 100% strong neck, it would have been perfect. But my wife actually said to the doctor, what's the other option? And he said, the only other option is to, to put a metal halo on him and see if it heals naturally. And she said, well, what does that entail? And he said, well, it's like three or four weeks with a thing bolted in his head um, and a, a vest and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and she said, well, that let his head move. And the doctor said, well, there's a chance it might. It's a painful chance and it's a, a small chance, but it might. And she said to the doctor, um, take away his ability to race a motorbike by fusing his neck, you might as well kill him anyway. So go with the, um, go with the halo option, he'll take the pain, and if it works, great, we'll carry on, and if it doesn't, we won't. Now, we're in a situation where I've got some mobility back, I've got my helicopter license back, I had to go for a medical one, some, some old boy trying to turn me into, uh, what's them things where they lock an owl, you know, when they're trying to spin your head around? 
I went to this medical, right? And I said, um, I knew it was coming. Um, and I knew exactly what it was going to do. So in the, in the hospital, they'd given me these really strong painkillers. So I like, took about four painkillers before I got to this doctor's appointment. He's got old words. And, he's and I'm like, Ugh! And he's like, no, you seem to have good movement. That's fine. You can carry on. So like, um, as it stands right now, we, we, I've got to be patient. Um, I'm not very good at being patient. But the, the positive thing is that every two or three months, I've had to visit my surgeon. And now, I don't actually have to go and visit him again until September. So with, with that in mind, um, you'd have to say that things are looking up a little bit, but it's going to be a long road. OK, so the trend is positive. Trend's always positive for me. I've got no time for negativity. <laughs> well, thanks for giving us a truthful answer anyway. Thanks. No worries. Good luck. Any other questions, <clears throat> gentlemen? So on your positivity that everything's always positive, you must occasionally have bad days where you're not so positive, uh, speaking as someone that's also disabled and got a lot of recovery, nothing so exciting, unfortunately, as a motorbike crash. I was just born wonky. But how do you keep yourself going on the bad days? What keeps you so positive? Do you know what, honestly? I'd say that, the, for me, the bad days just make the good days better. Hmm. You know, you can, you, can look at, uh, you can look at yourself, you can feel sorry for yourself, you can, you know, get down sometimes, and you can, you can think the whole world's against you, but... You know, ultimately, in, in May last year, I nearly lost my life. I got told I was going to be paralysed. I got told that, you know, my life was going to change forever. And here I am talking nonsense to you lot. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not all bad. Um, and I think that, as I said, you know, I always said in racing that the bad days only make the good ones better. You know, it doesn't matter how hard you try. If you give your best and do your best and, and your best is your best. That, that's where you're at. So doesn't, you don't have to look too far. Um, you know, there might be somebody in the, in the crowd right now who's much more poorly than I am, still turned up to come here and see me. You know, there's, there's loads of people that are they're far worse off than, than we are. So just be positive for everything we got and, and keep looking forward. Brilliant. Um, ladies and gentlemen, another question maybe. Um, Shaky, did you, um, in your childhood, did you, did you grow up around motorcycles, uh, racing, people? racing motorcycles and whatnot? I couldn't have grown up further away from it, to be honest. My, my mum and dad never even had a driving licence, so God knows where this ambition to ride a motorbike or race a motorbike come from. Um, I, uh, funnily enough, yesterday, just yesterday, I, I bought a little motorbike, right? And what, you when, didn't get it for free? No. You bought it? So I told you, that's why I've come to see you. Okay. <laughs> um, when, um, when I was a kid, I must have been about four or five years old. My parents used to take us on holiday to Butlins. And we used to go to, to Bognor Regis. And at Bognor Regis, there was a, like a little motorbike track. And they had these little pooch Magnum X's. Now, I'd disappear off on this holiday. And I'd sit up on the wall. And I'd just watch the, the people that were allowed to go around on these pooch Magnum X's for hours and hours and hours. And my cousin, who, who came on holiday with us, was a little bit older than I was. He got quite friendly with the lads that run the thing. Uh, or run the bikes. And I remember about, I don't know, couple of days maybe before we left this, this campsite thing, um, he arranged for me to get a go on one of these little pooch magnums. So that was the first time I ever got to ride a motorbike. And, and it was like, I don't know. It, 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 you found it, your life, I that, guess. That was me, yeah. And yesterday, typical, this is right. When you see something on eBay, right, I thought it would be a great idea to buy one of them. I know exactly how much I'm going to pay for it. 
it got to about five minutes from the end, right? And I'm already like three or four hundred quid over my budget. <laughs> Someone outbid me. And I was like, like the next whatever I put, I put like a load of money into it and won it. So I went down to Hastings yesterday and collected this little bike, and uh, I'm going to have it all kind it's of. It's a little pooch, pooch maxi. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, Magnum pooch maxi. Magnum. Do you want to see a picture? Yeah, yeah. I want to know what it looks like. Um, you are can buy it if are you they want. still going down there? Yeah, yeah. It'd be a premium, aren't they? Yeah. Are they still going around down there? Um, right, I, I don't think know. There well, was you'll find there's a young lady in the in the middle Somewhere here. Yeah. Maybe a maybe a shallow question, but Desert Island motorbike instead of Desert Island discs, you can only take one. Ooh. Your favourite ever motorbike, which would it be? Oh, a Push Maxi. <laughs> Magnum. Magnum. Sorry, it's an ice cream. <laughs> and it's not about. Is, is there something that? I don't know, your first road bike, your first race bike. I'll tell you what I did, I'll tell you a funny story, right? Right, yeah. Talking about motorbikes. Make I just a recently I just recently bought who knows what a Yamaha DT125 is. Yeah. So after getting sacked for being a shit mechanic, <laughs> I went back to Colwyn's a little bit later on to become a storeman, right? And look after the stores and spare parts and everything. Now, by now I was 17 years old, and we got in in part exchange, this DT125R. And at the time, it had a power valve kit on it, it had a trick exhaust on it and everything, right? And I loved it, and I was allowed to take it home in the evenings, which for me was like heaven. I just used to basically finish work at five o'clock, go to bed at 11, having ridden for six hours, and then get up in the morning at like four o'clock to go and ride another few hours before going to work. I loved the thing. I used to, we get people phone up the shop, right? I'd say, hello, Collins. Um, yeah, I see you've got a DT125 advertised, mate. 1,500 quid it was, something like that. Yeah, we have, yes, yeah, so 3495, that one. So are you interested? 3495, that sounds a bit expensive. Well, sorry, mate, you know, if you ain't got the money for it, don't worry about it. <laughs> that would be me the next night back out on it again. So anyway, I went and bought a DT125R the other week, so yeah, I'd probably take that with me. That's your favourite bike. Mm. Right, we've got another question at the back. Uh, so, Shaky, did, uh, did your friend Jeremy McWilliams ever persuade you to go road racing or suggest you go road racing? Do you know what, honestly, I, I think the problem with, with me and road racing would be that I would enjoy it too much. Um, but the egotistical racer in me wouldn't be able to accept being beaten by somebody that you could perhaps smoke on a short circuit. You know, and if they were that much better than you on the road, you'd push beyond your, you know, perhaps your, your safety levels to, to make sure that you beat them. I mean... Okay, now that fast bike's job, that was practically like Northwest 200 mm. racing anyway, you know, so, and but, I absolutely but, loved it. Yeah, I know what you mean, because you're going to get out there and you're going to have two years of specialists that kind of know the circuit yeah. really well, and you're going to think that, yeah, and it could stretch you a little bit. But yeah. um, I think, uh, I think it's truthfully, you, I, I, I don't like seeing people that, dare I say, towards the end of their career, just go and do road racing. Do you know what the problem is, right? There, there's, been this, uh, there's been this sort of fashion, if you like, or, or this, this thing that's happened where, you know, a lot of the guys in, in BSB, for instance, or even some of the, the World Superbike guys, mm. to a degree, even the guys at the back of MotoGP, they're not really getting paid at all. So they'll go and be a, a plasterer or a plumber or whatever they are all week. And then they'll rock up at a BSB weekend, get no prize money, because there's no prize money in BSB from, from the organisers at all, not a penny. Um, however, the championship does pretty much fund every team and, and make the whole show roll along, so you can't knock them. Um, but they'll get Mervyn White, for instance, or they'll get Paul mm. Phillips from the Isle of Man, 
who will say, oh, well, why don't you come over and have a little look at the TT? Or why don't you come and have a look at all this? You know, we'll, we'll bung you 10 grand to start. And all of a sudden, it's like half a year's wages or whatever. And the boys then think to themselves, you know what? Mm. Could do that. Spend a couple of years learning. Then the prize money comes. And, you know, there's a, it, it's an obvious route, if you know what I mean. I think the one exception from the rule is Peter Hickman, maybe. Yeah, I think. Um, but, but Peter kind of had a, a, a love and want, wanted to do he it. He wants to do it, he yeah. He wanted to do it from an early yeah. age. His dad did it and everything else. But, but he's fast enough to, to be right. a good the, BSB rider. Not so many that start at a very young age and really want to do it, unless you're Irish, it seems, because that's Glenn's into it. Yeah. Glenn loves it. My, my teammate from last year, um, you know, northwest to him is like, well, it's in his yeah. back garden anyway. But, that, but he that's doesn't do the TT, and I don't think he will. No, I don't think he will. No. No, no. The Northwest is arguably a bit in between now. I don't, you haven't been out there for a while, maybe. I don't know. But it's. I've done a lap in the course car. Oh, did you last year? life out of Mervyn White. Well, donuts everywhere and all sorts. Yeah. It's got a bit of room on two corners. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's about it. Um, and one oh, of them, yeah. someone's driveway. <laughs> oh, what was a course car? Uh, we had a. Um, or they had the. You know, the Holden. VXR oh, yeah, eight things, yeah, yeah. one of them. Right. So um, <laughs> Mervyn's the most nervous passenger you've ever met. I know I'm not supposed to be asking questions, but car race, you never thought about it? Yeah, I have, yeah. I had a test in a touring car at the end of last year. Okay. Uh, was that a Knock Hill? No. No, Brands Hatch. Knock Hill, Brands Hatch, yeah. right? Um, you know, the funny thing is, right, just, sorry, I know you're supposed to be answering the questions and I'm waffling on, but... I asked it, I'll put my hand up. One more funny story. Danny Kent, you'll all know him, Motor Free World Champion, right? Really, really successful kid. Focused really, really well, you know, great little racer, but found himself about a ride in Moto 2 last year. So he came back to do BSB for the last round for Muvano Suzuki. I went up to Brands, I was there for, for MSV anyway, and Danny's about to go out on the track. Track's kind of half wet, half dry. It's a normal track day, right? So not racers or nothing like that. And he's out there on this superbike. And I said to him, listen, mate. It's a, it's a track day, right? There's guys out there that are going to be much slower than you. The bike's much quicker than everything you've ever ridden before. It's halfway, half dry. You're going to learn nothing, all right? Just have a, have a wobble around. Set your, you don't need me to tell you. Set your footrests up, set your bars up or whatever, and look forward to, to coming back in a couple of weeks for the GP mm. circuit. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, fast forward a few weeks, right? Shaky, do you want to test in a British touring car? Yes. <laughs> so I rocked up at Brands Hatch, right? <laughs> it's half wet, half dry on a normal car track day. <laughs> Guy says to me, you ready to go out? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> that was it. I was out there. Went backwards down Paddock Hill once. Did you? Oh. <laughs> Tell you what, it's not as easy as it looks. That no, car no, job. no, no, I'm sure it's not. In, in a, but you enjoyed it? Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Um, in fact, I could go and race one this year, but... Um, I don't think I will be. Okay. Now, they have them um, hands devices. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the, the drivers have the, yeah. the thing strapped on their thing. But, you know, essentially, at the moment for me, because the, because the, the metal's in my back quite near the top, right? And it's about that long. So where that bit's really strong, because it's metal plated, any, any impact is going to jolt above it. And obviously, the bit above it's no good anyway at the moment. So, mm. yeah. Right. Well, impacting with another tire will probably be a great idea. Right, but it's something you might think about. Yeah, I might have a do, yeah. Yeah, why not? I mean, you've got to keep out of a proper job for as long as you can. Well, <laughs> I, I'm celebrating. A prime example of that. <laughs> I'm in my 45th year. <laughs> and I'm not sure what I'm going to be when I'm older. <laughs> All done, ladies and gentlemen, Shaky Burns. Uh, Shaky Burns. Pleasure. Um, Autographs at the back. Just if you can. Stay there for a moment. Yeah. 
going to upstage Steve at the moment because as soon as I present this to Shaky, he will say, well, I've got one, but it's bigger than yours. Actually, I'm looking at that. I think that's bigger than mine. <laughs> could be, couldn't it? Yeah, it could easily be. This is a piece of genuine 1908 track from here oh, that we God. award to everyone that comes along as a legend. Really? This is for you. Thank you so much. There we go. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Shaky was telling me earlier, uh, going to pick his kids up from school, that someone drove past his nice new Range Rover and took the wing mirror off. I bet you wish you had that with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyone like autographs? We're going to do them at the back of the room. But and there's a book. Isn't, there's a book, isn't there? Apparently, there's a book up the back. Right, so I'm told. Okay. But what? Um, it's I'm cheap tonight. I have brought along <laughs> a BBC shirt that I was going to get Shaky to sign it, and as long as you don't sign it too big, then you can wear this and go in anywhere. Without if you put that on, say your name's Charlie Cox and you work for the BBC, you'll get in without a pass. But Shake, if you wouldn't mind signing this and then maybe we can auction it off. I'll think? tell you what. We'll I'll... auction it, yeah, with pleasure. Got £10 in there. £15, £15, would you go? £20, anybody for this? I've got £50 in the back. Any increase on £50 out the back? Sign BBC shirt. £75 here. At once. At £75. At twice at £75. It's going to be sold at £75. £75 pounds, it is yours to whoever it was sat down there, £75 pounds, would you please stand up and come forwards, at the back. <laughs>